Maybe be seated. Drawbridge. Thank you, and may it please the court. This appeal raises two questions. First, does the court have appellate jurisdiction over the president's appeal of his effective denial of immunity? And second, is the president correct that plaintiff's claims against him in his individual capacity must be dismissed on one of any number of grounds that were asserted below? Uh, the answer to both questions is yes. With respect to the court's jurisdiction, it is clear that the president's absolute immunity was effectively denied below. Because absolute immunity is immunity from suit, this court and the Supreme Court have repeatedly emphasized the need to resolve the immunity question at the outset of the case. When the district court declined to do so and instead opened discovery, the president was subjected to pretrial procedures and thus could appeal the effective denial to this court as the court has recognized in Jenkins and in Nero. Where did uh, the court decline to do so? The court failed to uh, act on the motion, which had been pending for a number of months, declined to address uh, multiple requests from us to decide that motion quickly. I thought I had thought that the court said that he understood, he was thinking about this, and he would be ruling on it. Twice. That is what the court said at one point when it issued I the think motion. it was twice. May have, said, may have said it twice, but one, but, but the, the motions to dismiss by the government were decided uh, you know, by the end of the summer. It was August at the time. Uh, we asked for a status conference as discovery began to move forward. Discovery was officially opened by an order of the court in December. We again asked for a status conference. Two weeks went by without any indication that the court was going to address our concern. And with discovery open... Well, on the day you requested... Uh, another ruling. Actually, you said in August you said at the earliest convenience, and then in December uh, uh, you requested it again. And on the very day you requested it, the court ordered discovery. Correct. Six months of discovery uh, uh, program. Well, thirty-eight as I subpoenas. Understand the discovery order. It wasn't against the president in his individual capacity. Is that correct? Well, the discovery order reached a number of third parties. It included some of the some of the organizations that are associated with the president's business operations. But um, that, that that point is neither here nor there because the proceeding of discovery against anybody in a case in which the president remains a defendant is subjecting him to pretrial procedures. And Iqbal makes that clear. Uh, in Iqbal, you may remember the Supreme Court uh, addressed the question because there was a suggestion there by the parties that they would hold off on doing any discovery with respect to Attorney General Ashcroft. Uh, and the court said no. The development of a factual record, the continuation of discovery, puts the president, in this case, in that case, uh, Attorney General Ashcroft, in an untenable position. It's either you know participate in those proceedings, protect the development of the record, assert whatever rights your client might have, and therefore be subject to the proceedings and the effective denial of your immunity or be able to take an appeal from the subjecting to pretrial procedures. And that's consistent with this court's decisions. I mean, Jenkins and Nero, you had situations. What about Al-Shamari? You familiar with that one? I'm sorry? Al-Shamari, our Al-Shamari case. Which Al-Shamari case is that? I'm it's, well, it's 2012, it's in bank uh, case. And uh, we said that disputed questions that arise with respect to claims of immunity, uh, are subject to discovery if the court wants to be informed. Even a party whose assertion of immunity ultimately proves worthy must submit to the burdens of litigation until a court becomes sufficiently informed uh, to rule. Be, well, that may be respect. That, that may be true in some uh, respects. That's our that's our in bank precedent in 2012. Well, certainly there. there now there was a collateral order uh, qualified immunity case. Correct. And, and, and Not absolute immunity. I'll, I'll give you that. That's right. So absolute immunity is obviously a stronger protection against any invocation of pretrial proceedings. But even in that case, the fact that the district court may deny qualified immunity and appeal comes up and there is deemed some further procedure that is necessary to reach that point doesn't really apply in this case because you have all the information that you need to decide the absolute immunity question at this point. And the only other choice, again, uh, and remember that once, once we did file a notice of appeal, rather than indicating that it was prepared to rule on the question of absolute immunity, it was the court that raised the question as to whether the, 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 the president in his individual capacity could be dismissed from the case. So I just don't think there's any basis to assume that an order was forthcoming from the district court uh, and discovery was open. Well, there's a lot of bases. The district court told us twice it was coming. Correct, but once and, it opened. And, and you have to, I mean, you're all the, this is your only basis for appeal is interlocutory order. Uh, 
Yeah, well, it is the only basis for, for the interlocutory appeal of the denial of immunity. It's a firm basis. It's been affirmed by the, by the Supreme Court. Iqbal makes it crystal clear, I think, that we have the right to be here. Of course, once we're here, there are other issues that the court I'm, can I'm sorry. In there, if we, unless we invoke the collateral order doctrine because we conclude somehow that the district court has denied you immunity, do you have another basis for appeal right now? No, immunity is the denial of immunity okay. is our basis for appeal okay. to this court. So let's talk about denial of immunity. So you rely on the two cases from this court. As well as Iqbal, yes. <laughs> okay, let's, but let's talk about the two cases from this court, Jenkins and Nero. Correct. Neither one of them are this case, are they? Well, no, in those cases, you had the benefit of, of an explicit order from the court that was going to decline right. the order. But, <laughs> an, ex but, an order denying immunity is different than saying, I am going to reach the question of immunity, but, the, but, but not yet. But, but, but the denial of immunity is no less a denial by non-action from the district court as it is from an explicit action from the district court and a refusal well, well, to deny. Tell me, both a, leave the cite me a case that says that. Well, I think that we said it a number of cases from other circuits that indicate that effective denials are appropriate. Yes, effective denials, but we don't have an effective denial. We have, are you a litigator or a, just a, a pallet lawyer? I, 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 I dabble in the arts of litigation as well. Yes, there you go. So, you know, um, the District of Maryland historically has had cases <clears throat> waiting to be ruled on for motions to dismiss for, for three years. And, and So seven months is nothing. And that is ordinarily not a problem, but you know, setting aside the fact that this is a case that does involve the President of the United States, right. separation powers generally counsel in favor of you know, you know, careful and, and, and adequate attention to those matters. Once discovery is open, once there are there are dozens of subpoenas out in the wild, once the President is being put to the Are there any subpoenas against the President in well, any capacity? That, that implicate the President's interests. And again, it doesn't matter, as in Ashcroft, you can't sequence the discovery in a way to avoid this problem. But, but Counsel, can I say, th there are cases from other circuits about these um, sort of de facto denials of immunity. But are there any like this where the period of time is so short and doesn't seem unreasonable, given that the district court is dealing with the official capacity suit, so there's no unreasonable delay. Um, the district court is saying, I am going to want it. And yes, discovery is open, but not as against the party who is seeking discovery. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, who is seeking immunity. And I understand your point about Iqbal, that the government, the president's personal capacity lawyers may have to attend a deposition. But there is no discovery that has been ordered against the actual party <clears throat> seeking immunity. I can't find any case like that, saying that when you add up no unreasonable delay and discovery against a different party that I will grant you implicates the interests of the party seeking immunity. We and the court is saying I'm going to rule on. We can say there's been a de facto denial. The, the lack of a, of a case that that is going to be on all fours with the particular. Well, not even case. on all fours. I mean, I guess. Right. Okay. So there's nothing on all right. fours, but I guess I am troubled by the fact that it, it seems to me that for us to say there has been a denial <clears throat> in the face of the district court saying I'm getting to this. Um, is a difficult lift, and we don't have the thing that makes it that the other courts rely on to do that. We don't have either of the two things, an unreasonable delay or discovery against the party seeking immunity. So I'm sort of troubled about how we fill that gap. So, so again, and I, I understand you understand this, yeah. so under Iqbal, and I think just generally mm -hmm. as, as a matter of how litigation works, right, you're gonna have we're to subject go to, to pre-trial procedures whether yep. or not. And it's yeah, not just there, depositions, it may be discovery requests. There's all sorts of objections that parties can raise. Well, of course, you could um, try to mandamus that. I mean, the, the discovery order, right? Well, I mean, you wouldn't have to have the president sit in a deposition. You could come into court, get some relief. Right? Again, the problem at that point is our immunity defense, at least, has not even been adjudicated. We've already suffered the denial. The cases are very clear about. Well, okay, that, if there has what was a decision on immunity, you can appeal that interlocutorily. Well, again, I don't, I don't, and respectfully, I don't, I don't think it's that heavy of a lift. Just simply because if the district's saying, and literally in some of those cases, it's one sentence. Uh, I'm not going to rule on immunity at this time. I need more information. Is still sufficient to constitute an effective denial of immunity than a, a, a statement that I will rule on immunity eventually, but then the initiation of pretrial procedures. I mean, we really said not that no different. in the in, in the Al Shamari case. We said no to that question that you just framed. We but, said no. Of course, you got the in bank court here now. We can change that. Well, that, and, that, and we said no by a vote eleven to four. That's true, but this is absolute immunity, so I think that alone is sufficient to distinguish it. And again, I think that. Well, is there any case that says that? Iqbal, well, well <laughs> okay. There, 
Fair enough. I may not have a case directly on point. I, doesn't, I don't think the principles can really be disputed. I mean, I, again, I don't think everyone, I think, agrees that absolute immunity is immunity from suit. Well, there's another it's interest just, that uh, um, uh, we, we, you can recognize that there may be some limited discovery to make an immunity ruling. But the discovery in this case was opened up not, it was not, it's just the opposite. It was not limited to the immunity ruling. The immunity was put on hold, so to speak. And the president and the, uh, the court ordered discovery to go ahead under a six month program uh, in which uh, itself violates the immunity. Correct. And uh, it seems to me it's more than an effective denial. It's, uh, it's <clears throat> almost an explicit denial when you order discovery uh, and not discovery limited to the immunity, but general discovery. Uh, which you have to tend and participate in uh, or forego your rights on uh, in a case. I mean, this is, this is all the same case as the uh, suit against the president in the official capacity. It's a, uh, it's a single suit, and uh, uh, the discovery may be limited to certain issues, but it was not limited to immunity. Correct. And, I, it, and it seems to me when the court orders a program of discovery, it is denying uh, absolute immunity, which covers discovery. I, I think that has to be right. Otherwise, the, 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 the virtue of immunity and the repeated recognition by this court and admission of the Supreme Court that immunity has to be disposed of at the outset. But Mr. Strubridge, doesn't that um, ignore the distinction between the two capacities here, which the Supreme Court has also recognized? And so why would we assume if discovery has only been ordered against the president in one capacity, it comes against him in another capacity. Because the Supreme Court, this court, we've always recognized that difference. Well, the recognition of different capacities doesn't answer the question as to whether the, the, the president, even if, even if you view him as individual capacity as an entirely separate defendant, uh -huh. is being subjected to pretrial procedures. I mean, that's the whole point of Ashcroft. In Ashcroft, they were proposing not to do any discovery against, or, I'm sorry, Nick Paul. Uh, they were not proposing to do I, any I'll understand everything roasted. Against, against entire uh, parties in that case. So, so if, if in that case, even discovery that's only succeeding against other parties still implicates the immunity, the right to uh, early determination of immunity. But except, I mean, you have, you have two different, I'm over here, sorry. You have two different cases, one in uh, the president's official capacity, one in his individual capacity. And if this individual capacity lawsuit had been dismissed or never brought, you still would have had to have responded to the discovery in the official capacity suit. So I'm not exactly sure why it matters that uh, the, the immunity issue hasn't been addressed if your only concern about that is discovery. That's not, that's not necessarily correct. The president's, the president's naming as a defendant as individual capacity is what necessitated the hiring of additional counsel preparations and parties to litigation have have different rights than third parties. And I think as they pointed out, the third party discovery in this case actually went with a number of corporate organizations. The problem we have here is that we are a party to this action. We've asserted in a very timely fashion our right to immunity and we're entitled to a determination of it, immunity before we're subjected, subjected to pretrial proceedings. And discovery, even against other parties, even against the same party in a different capacity, is still pretrial procedures. And I, I don't think there's any room to read it well. To, to, to quit with that point. Well, to raise a question that we talked about a lot in the previous case, what is it that you want from us? Well, uh, in this case, I think the court clearly has jurisdiction and has to exercise. No, 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 no. I know what you think about that. What do you want the order to be? Well, I think that the court is obligated to 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 address third uh, to address Article Three standing in the first instance. Uh -huh. Coco makes that clear. So I think that you have to, at least at a minimum, you have to reach and decide the standing. We obviously think that there is no standing uh, under any of the theories for the reasons. You, you want the case to be dismissed, don't you? That, that, that is correct on immunity grounds, on standing grounds, or the other issues we've identified that are sufficiently uh, dependent upon. So order. if we have no jurisdiction, we're going to dismiss it. You're going to get the relief you want, right? If you have no jurisdiction, well, I guess that depends. In this case, we want we want the case to be dismissed in a way that assures want, that our right to immunity is vindicated. <laughs> but the, the the result would be the same. Uh, well, the result may not be the same depending on what the basis of the dismissal of it may have inclusive effects, it may have additional effects, it may have uh, benefits to the president's determination on immunity. He was nobody forced the, the plaintiffs to add him to this complaint. They did so on, out of their own free will. 
Uh, we asserted our timely defense. We want a determination of immunity to avoid that we were not placed in the untenable position, which again would be another effective denial of immunity. Counsel, um, to go to Judge Motz's question, um, the order of decision, if we determined we had jurisdiction, uh, you suggested we would must first go to Article 3. Uh, may we not go to absolute immunity, uh, or does that necessarily have to come behind the Article 3 question? Well, I think that Steele Co. and this court's decision in uh, Williams v. Hansen makes it pretty clear that Article 3 jurisdiction is a threshold question that the court always has to satisfy itself, not only with respect to its own appellate jurisdiction, but to the actions of the district court below. So our reading of Steele Co. and of this court's decision in Williams v. Hansen makes it pretty clear that you do have to satisfy yourself of Article 3 jurisdiction first. Uh, the court then uh, could proceed to the immunity case, although we think that the, the, both the, the, the cause of action question and the merits question are sufficiently intertwined with that. The court has several options available to it. But I think the order of battle that Steel Co. sets out is jurisdictional questions have to come first. And so in that case, it, it, you have to go to our freestanding question. Um, obviously, even if it, 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 there's a lot of talk about the effect of the Rule 41A1 dismissal before being satisfied on that point. I think that I think that this court's decisions, both before and since, including the decision to Median Energy, uh, support our view and our reading of the cases that once the district court was divested of jurisdiction by a timely notice of appeal and by the docketing of the case in this court, uh, we were uh, the district court was divested of any further ability to exercise jurisdiction, including to affect the dismissal of the action. Uh, and as the panel pointed out, it would create all sorts of uh, opportunity for mischief and would be inconsistent with the federal rules of appellate procedure uh, to permit a, a, a party who is unhappy with the way in which the appeal is proceeding to unilaterally go back to district court, file a notice of dismissal, and dispose of the appeal at that point in time. Um, I don't think uh, Doe public citizen in this court and a number of other cases, including the Dominion Energy case, I think, uh, doomed the suggestion that notwithstanding vesting jurisdiction in this court, the Rule 41A1, A1 dismissal can still take effect in the district court. I mean, I do, I, I, I guess uh, I would like you to address a concern I have that it, it does seem as though um, this, this it, it, it's, it's an odd posture, right, because no one is actually advancing this claim at this point. So why isn't it a little bit advisory-ish? For us uh, well, to reach it? Well, I don't think it's advisory. I also don't think it's correct that they're not advancing the claim. They, they file briefs. They have continued to contest the argument. They are not satisfied with accepting a dismissal without prejudice. If they had, if they had proposed to dismiss the, I'm sorry, but if they had proposed to dismiss the case with prejudice, we would no doubt have a much harder argument. But we would at least have certainty on behalf of the president that he's not going to be subject to suit by these same parties. We may have more certainty from the decision of this court that we won't be subject to to suit by other states or other entities that assert that they have power uh, under the theories that they have advanced with respect to standing a number of... Actually, it goes further than that in the uh, argument for the panel, if I recall correctly. Uh, the opposing side indicated that they did want it without prejudice and did not want to give up the right to bring the suit again. Yeah, and uh, uh, were, they were reserving that right. There are procedures under the federal rules of appellate procedure to effectuate dismissal of an appeal. They do not allow for the unilateral dismissal by the appellee in any instance. And of course, we have not been approached at all with respect to on what terms we'd be willing to uh, stipulate to dismissal. So I think it's pretty clear, and you're right, that the argument of the panel confirmed the president's concerns that he is going to be subject to further action. And, you know, dismissing him from the case for the time being, allowing all the discovery to develop, and then bringing him back in at a later date is, is just as troublesome as attempting to do it through the discovery process in which the, the, the Supreme Court recognized in the Iqbal case. Uh, I do think that the standing question uh, should be decided basically on the same grounds that the panel did. I do think that there's, there's no parents' patriotic standing with respect to claims uh, arising against the federal government. I think the competitor injury standing is overly speculative. It does not requirements of, of an imminent, regressible, traceable injury. Uh, in this case, it, that, that even the competitor standing uh, cases have imposed, and the quasi-sovereign uh, interest that was asserted below is, is very difficult to fathom. It doesn't arise to the, to the level of concrete injury and harm. And I also think that uh, immunity is a is a sufficient basis upon which to dismiss us uh, as. It was made clear in the other one that the lawsuit against the president in this case arises only from his official status as president and can only violate the emoluments clause. 
as president, and therefore uh, immunity would be appropriate. I'll reserve my time unless there's further questions. Thank you, Council. Tulin. <clears throat> Morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Leah Tulin on behalf of the District of Columbia in Maryland. We think that this court lacks jurisdiction over the president's appeal for two independent reasons, and that is where I intend to focus my attention this morning, but I would also be happy to answer any other questions the court may have. First, the district court did not effectively deny the president's immunity claim. In fact, as uh, members of this court have recognized, the district court was very clear that it intended to rule on the motion. And I'd like to read from Al-Shamari. Before jurisdiction can be invoked under the collateral order doctrine, a district court must issue a, quote, fully consummated decision that constitutes a complete, formal, and final resolution of the issue. In other words, the court's ruling must be the final word on the subject addressed. For that reason alone, this court lacks jurisdiction under the collateral order doctrine. Second, the District of Columbia and Maryland filed a self-executing Rule 41A1A1 Notice of Voluntary Dismissal. As this court and other courts have recognized, the filing of such a notice operates as a matter of unconditional right running to the plaintiff and may not be extinguished or circumscribed by an adversary or the court. Thus, even so if, if you had not filed your Rule 41 notice until right now, filed it during the course of oral argument, would that moot our case? So I believe it would. And that is the balance that's struck in the federal rules. And that's actually what this court's decisions in both uh, Merrick's Titanic and in In Ray Matthews discuss, is that even when there has been an investment of resources by the defendant and by the court, <coughs> Rule 41 strikes the balance. It's a clear, bright line rule. If a, a motion for summary judgment or an answer has not been filed, then a Rule 41 notice is an absolute. So, right under of your the view, for instance, you could wait till after oral argument, file your Rule 41, terminate the case. You could even wait till after the opinions issued, but before the mandate issues, and still file them. Well, I think that is the logic of our position. That's obviously not what happened here, but also there's a whole line but of that cases is, about that mootness. That is where your view of Rule 41 takes you. It does take us there, but what I would say to that is that there's a whole line of cases, the Munsingware cases, that talk about what the appropriate thing to do to essentially to address the sort of concern about um, gamesmanship is that if the party who's who's voluntarily uh, moots the case can't get the benefit of a lower court decision. So the equitable remedy of vacatur exists to address any sort of uh, benefit that they would get from that. And here, there is well, no that's decision. No, that's no assurance because the, the dismissal would take place probably under, under the gamesmanship theory at a stage of the case where the party dismissing was fairly certain it was going to lose. So the party dismissing knows it's not going to get the benefit of the district court decision in any event because the Court of Appeals appears either from briefs or argument to be unsympathetic to the position. So you just snatch the case at the 11th hour. The, the benefit of the district court decision is, not, is immaterial to you because you're not going to get it. You, 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 you lose the benefit. Well, you're going to lose the benefit if there's a reversal at the appellate level. So how is that any kind of safeguard against the sort of gamesmanship uh, with respect to Rule 41 that you seem to be advancing? Well, what this court said in Merrick's Titanic is it, it's, there in, in that case, at the district court level, there were concerns that the party had come in, there was a motion for preliminary injunction, there had been hearings, three days of hearings on the preliminary injunction motion, and the court was actually concerned that there was a fraud on the court, that the party seeking the preliminary injunction had, uh, had 
misrepresented things to the court. And what the court in that case said is that it is especially tempting to force the plaintiff to take its medicine in a case like this, where the plaintiff's behavior has been so disassembling, if not downright fraudulent. But our task is to apply the text, not improve upon it. And so all of the, the Rule 41 cases contemplate the possibility that a litigant may uh, use a Rule 41 notice of voluntary dismissal in a way that uh, leaves the court and the other side feeling unsatisfied, but they've nevertheless described it as an absolute, unconditional, self-executing right. Do any of those cases actually deal with a dismissal filed when the case is on appeal? So none of those cases are on all fours in the procedural posture. But Isn't that this the problem here? I mean, it's it makes sense, I guess, that where the district court has retained jurisdiction to allow for that kind of liberal voluntary dismissal, but the case is now before us. And so why should we defer to a district court dismissal when the case is properly before the appellate court? Well, because for, for two reasons. The first is that the whole, I, it's not properly before this court. Well, it is. We, Once a notice of appeal is filed, jurisdiction vests in the Court of Appeals. Well, Once the notice of appeal is filed, jurisdiction vests in, notice of, in, the, in the Court of Appeals. The only thing that can happen in the district court is an act in aid of the appeal. In so, aid of the appeal. Undermining the appeal is a different thing. So The, the court, district court, once the notice of appeal is filed, can act in aid of the appeal. Otherwise, jurisdiction's in the Court of Appeals. That's the law, as I understand it. So the general... We had one of these things last year. It was in the... Uh, there's a case called Dominion. Uh, and they had one of the issues similar to yours. But there, the court of the district court had entered a stay. And we did we skirted the issue because they, we, they tried to file the Rule 41 thing after the stay was imposed. And we said it was barred by the stay, obviously, on the face of it. So we didn't have to deal with the thing you're presenting. Seems to me you're stretching things and getting off on something you don't need to get into. I don't have any idea why you're getting into this. Well, the only I, question here is whether there's a this collateral order appeal uh, can go forward where, you, where there's never been a ruling. And isn't there an issue there um, under Al Shamari about a control? If we have a controlling question of law that doesn't require fa factual development, we have, I think, an exception to the prohibition against the collateral order from our in bank decision. And you're not suggesting there needs to be any factual development here. I mean, it's just a pure question of law, isn't it? So I believe that the immunity question is a question of law in this case. So if I'm right in the way that opinion reads, we don't need to go through the El Shamari factual development issue that that, that, that you know, opinion talked about. Well, I still think that the opinion addresses the fact of what constitutes a collateral order. Here there is no order. And the, sure. the, district, the defendant certainly could have sought mandamus. I got you. And so I don't mean to cut you off, but I understand your position that the non-order isn't effective enough. We have to address that first about whether the discovery here, in effect, creates that. I, I certainly understand that. But, but, but that issue wasn't presented in Al Shamari, so that's a that's a separate decision for us to make. Wouldn't you agree with that? So I, I think that it's a separate. The question of whether there was a, an order below is a separate question. But I think this goes actually back to Judge King's question, because it is true that the general rule under Griggs is that the filing of a notice of appeal divests the district court of jurisdiction to act. I don't want to belabor the point about Rule 41, but there are two important caveats to that. The first is that uh, the um, that Griggs itself makes clear that the notice of appeal has to be effective. And if the notice of appeal is defective, then it's treated as a nullity. It is as if it doesn't exist. And so it, the- If it's filed from a, non, a frivolous order that's not obviously not appealable, then it's not effective. Well, it That's could right. Be, I mean, I mean, if the defendant in a criminal case files a notice of appeal on Friday to try to keep from getting out of the trial on Monday, we have those things come up. And the district court doesn't have to pay attention to it. It doesn't want to. And 
because it's a frivolous notice of appeal. Well, but as a general proposition, the notice of appeal puts the jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals, period. I would disagree respectfully that the, with the period because it is equally well established that there are exceptions to that. It's not just that the jurisdiction that the district court can act in aid of the appeal. The, under the federal rules of appellate procedure, it can resolve a motion to alter or amend the judgment being appealed. It can appeal in the first, uh, it can address in the first instance a motion for stay pending appeal. It can correct clerical, clerical errors. It can address matters collateral but you, you to you have no case, I think, in answer to Judge Diaz's question before, where the notice of appeal has vested jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals, where it has been divested by Rule 41. I respectfully disagree with that. And All I will right, so what these, is it? These are cases that are cited in our uh, motion to dismiss the appeal at pages 8 and 9. Young versus Draper from this court, an unpublished opinion from 2017 per curiam. Uh, the plaintiff filed a Rule 41 notice while an interlocutory appeal was pending, and the court dismissed the case as moot. Uh, Cheeseboro versus so that's, Bloom. That's non-precedential, so it doesn't bind us. What else you got? Um, so I have a case from the Fifth Circuit uh, in 1993, McFarland versus Collins. All of these are cited in our brief, um, where a habeas petitioner, petitioner dismissed his own habeas petition in the district court during the pendency of the appeal. Uh, there's also a case, a very recent case from the Ninth Circuit. Uh, it was this week, actually, where the defendants, there were met uh, four defendants, and three of the defendants reached a settlement, so they filed a stipulation of dismissal. The other defendant refused to stipulate to dismissal, so the plaintiff filed a Rule 41 notice, and relying on the same cases, Padrina uh, is the case from the Ninth Circuit, but also citing to Merrick's Titanic and all of the cases that are cited in our brief, they said the district court doesn't have to exercise jurisdiction in order for a Rule 41A1A1 notice to be effective on the time that it's filed. You, you know, the, the question of whether this is a jurisdictional question uh, based on Rule 41 or whether it's a factual question, this court is no stranger to dismissing cases that are on the grounds that they're moot. I mean, we did it in a case, a uh, criminal case, in which a defendant uh, gone through trial, handled a decision <laughs> held against him, came on on bomb, headed in a direction going with the defendant on it, and then the president took an action on clemency, and nobody asked for mootness. They didn't go back to the district court, they didn't go anywhere. So you know what happened? The court sua sponte decided that's an executive thing. This is moot and just got rid of it. And that didn't have anything to do with jurisdiction. We had jurisdiction, but the jurisdiction was here to say it's moot uh, because it's over. Here, for all of our argument about whether this is moot or not, it, there's not a lot of cases this applies to. It doesn't even come up unless the defendant, if the defendant has answered or if summary judgment has come up. So it's a very narrow narrow class of cases in which you have an issue of this type that arises. I agree with you, Judge Wynn, and it's even narrower because it has to be a case where the defendant will not take yes for an answer and walk away with a dismissal. Well, let me ask you, uh, do you agree with the position that uh, the case against the president in his individual capacity is moot? Is that your position? Our position is that the Rule 41 notice... I know, I didn't... I asked you whether you take the position whether the uh, this appeal is moot. So we believe it is moot. Yes or no? Do you have an answer? Yes. It is moot? We believe it is moot. And and uh, uh, yet you've refused to dismiss it without prejudice. Do you still reserve the right to refile the suit? So we are not. Yes, we are not. Well, how can it be moot then? So... Our position is that it is moot by virtue of the Rule 41A1. That's not mootness. That's a, a procedural rule argument. Mootness goes to whether it's no longer a case or controversy. Well, And if you're reserving the right to file again, uh, we have this whole doctrine in the area of injunctions and otherwise. Uh, uh, it's hardly moot when you're sitting. You want to dismiss now but maybe file later. How can we say that's moot? So the... 
position that we have taken on mootness, the, the reason that we say it's moot because of the Rule 41 notice is because of the cases that say a Rule 41A1 notice puts the parties in the position as if the case had never been filed. So that is our position with respect to mootness. Can I, can I follow up? If, let's assume we do have jurisdiction on this based on the discovery in, 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 the, um, in the case. And let's assume that your Rule 41 notice is not something that deprives our jurisdiction. Do you have any argument um, that um, we don't have to address standing first, assuming we have jurisdiction in, in um, response to what your colleague argued earlier? Yes, Your Honor. We disagree strongly with the proposition that Steele Co. requires this court to address standing first. And the, the um, first principle behind that is that the first thing that this court does is look at what is its basis for appellate jurisdiction. The only basis for appellate jurisdiction is the collateral order doctrine. And the Supreme Court, so I, I, I have two points. First, I think you're taking away the assumption I asked you to make, but maybe maybe you're not. Go ahead. No, I'm not because so the uh, even assuming that the uh, the notice of appeal was effective, mm -hmm. still the basis for jurisdiction is the collateral order doctrine. Okay, that's the only basis. What this court said. So the Supreme Court has addressed this in several ways in Sinecab and Tenet v. Doe, both of which post-state Steel Co., the court said the uh, courts have wide leeway in choosing among threshold grounds for disposing of a case. So there's no reason, and this court in several immunity, cases- which must be uh, immunity which is usually raised under Rule 12b-6 uh, and is an affirmative defense which could be waived. Is that get precedence over uh, a jurisdictional issue which goes to the power of the court to act? It, and Steel Co., I thought, suggested that we couldn't assume our power to act if there was a question of, of that power. And we had to resolve that first. And so uh, it seems to me this is not threshold jurisdictional issues where we could pick uh, uh, even personal jurisdiction, which could be waived, uh, may, may be falling in the rule you're talking about. But this is a 12b-6 affirmative defense, and you're suggesting we should decide that ahead of the uh, power of the court. And uh, I I'm, I I'm wonder whether Steele Co. really doesn't tell us we have to decide our own power before we go ahead and exercise that power. Well, what the Supreme Court made clear in Sinechem, which is a case that said that it was okay for the court to decide forum nonconvenience before addressing uh, jurisdictional issues. What kind of jurisdictional issues? Personal jurisdiction? Uh, so, uh, There's a lot of difference, you know. Article three jurisdictional issues. Uh, well, I understand, but Article Three under a personal jurisdiction is quite a different concept from subject matter jurisdiction. Subject matter jurisdiction, uh, we don't even have the power to act, and that was what Justice Scalia was trying to point out that we should pay attention to. And, and other jurisdictional questions, like personal jurisdiction, is also jurisdictional, but it can be waived, and uh, uh, it doesn't deprive the court of the ability to act. And so... I think that's the important distinction that Steele Co. makes. So what the court in Sinechem said is that the principle underlying Steele Co. is that jurisdiction is vital only if the court proposes to issue a judgment on the merits. And so what cases after Steele Co., after Sinechem say, is that if you have, uh, if there are threshold non-merits issues that are properly presented, and what our argument is that here, that is the only thing that is properly presented so, under so the collateral order doctrine. So you're saying that the, there's a merits appeal and there's a lack of diversity appeal in a, in a civil suit. Uh, we can, if there's a lack of diversity, and we believe there's a lack of diversity, we can still go determine the merits? Well, it depends. And the, that hypothetical. So not based on the collateral order doctrine. I asked you in the hypothetical, there is an appeal. And we have the merits, uh, and we have uh, lack of diversity. We can ignore the diversity, assume that diversity is there, and, and uh, 
act on the merits? No, because what... We don't have the power to do that. What the court said is that's when the jurisdiction that's being discussed in Steel Co. matters, when the court purports to issue a ruling on the merits. So the question is not whether the court can skip to the merits and then address other jurisdictional issues. The question is when the court, court has before it a number of threshold non-merits questions, what is the proper order of operations? About a statute of limitations. Should we decide a statute of limitations when we don't have diversity? So I think that the if it when it is a threshold I'm asking you, why don't you address my hypothetical and we'll get further along. It's a, uh, my hypothetical is should we address a statute of limitations <laughs> issue uh, when we don't have diversity? So I think there I would also say that that is a threshold non-merits question and then the court has wide leeway. That's what the Supreme so we Court could decide, has said. We could decide statute of limitations? If it is a, a way to deny the party an audience to the case on the merits, then the court can decide in which order to dispose of the issues. And here- And where did we get the power to rule on limitations? We don't even have the power to do that. Congress gives us a limited power under Article Three, and one of them is diversity. And if we don't have diversity, we don't have the power to act or to rule that limitations is or is not in vote. It's, it's not a formula that you read a little quote from a case and say, we can decide anything we want if it's convenient or it's not on the merits. We have to understand the notion that if the motion goes to our power to act under Article Three, we have to resolve that before we move forward. There are obviously a lower levels of disposals, uh, jurisdictions, and then we have quite a bit of, uh, of leeway to make that decision. And I believe that's where the Supreme Court said. So respectfully, Your Honor, I believe that Sinechem and Tenet B. Doe both speak to this question and, and put an important uh, limitation on the Steel Co. holding. I would also point this court to uh, multiple cases that this court has decided after Steel Co. in which it has expressly declined to address standing or other Article Three subject matter jurisdiction issues so on uh, at bottom, you, want, you basically are arguing, I guess, at bottom that we should decide the immunity issue and not the uh, standing issue. And we think that that's is that, appropriate. Is that your position? That is our position. Ms. If Dillon, this court, I'm sorry, I didn't yes. understand that as your position. I thought that you thought that there was no final order here and there was no basis for invocation of the collateral order doctrine. Yes, so that so is correct. So if we have no final order and no collateral order, we have no appealable order, correct? I that so is correct. So all of this discussion is, if we do, if there somehow is jurisdiction here, then we look at these very interesting issues and discuss them. But if we should conclude that there is not an appealable order here, we dismiss. That's right? correct. That's correct. Can and I ask you? Well, you're back to where I, that, <laughs> that's where I thought you were at the beginning. But Judge Niemeyer got you talking about you need to decide standing and. Immunity and all this stuff, and we can't get there unless there's an appealable order. I completely agree. We have I to was... decide jurisdiction. Why are you first? spending all your time on something? That's so, what I said earlier. What are you doing? What are you, you're talking about all this other stuff about aiding jurisdiction on appeal with with a Rule 41 and and all these other issues. The question here is whether you have a notice of there's a notice of appeal that was effective. And whether there's collateral order jurisdiction. If the answer is no, end. Stop. No jurisdiction. Dismissal is what they call it. I agree, Judge King. I I took the premise of Judge Niemeyer's question to be that he disagreed with me about the modus, motion to dismiss the appeal because he wrote a panel opinion saying well, that. I, and so, I think, though, that you have to be clear in your answer. Panel opinion's been but those vacated. answers only go to the question if, if we do have jurisdiction. And then, and then they're all fair game and very interesting. But if we don't have any jurisdiction here, that's all she wrote, right? That's absolutely right, Judge Motz, and that is where I started. The first thing that the court has to decide is whether it has jurisdiction. Can I ask you a question on that? Doctrine. Um, yes. Let's go back to that basic. I think that fairly states your position as I understood it. I think these were other hypotheticals if we get beyond that. But uh, the main issue, one of the main issues, is whether uh, there was an effective denial. And you agree that Jenkins uh, 
holds that we don't have to have an order if the court effectively denied it. Uh, and uh, my, my question to you is this. When the district court entered, was requested several times uh, to address immunity, and then the district court, which of course covers immunity from proceedings, participating in proceedings including discovery, pretrial proceedings including discovery. When the district court enters an order scheduling discovery, in which the president's going to have to participate if he's going to be a, 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 a stay in the proceeding, uh, is that not effectively denying the right to be spared the onus of participating in pretrial proceedings, including discovery, under Iqbal? So there are a few, a few points in there, Judge Neumeier. No, I'm actually, I'll make it quick. I wanted to elaborate all the details, but the real question focuses on the discovery order of December 3rd. Uh, the program for discovery uh, effectively denied the president immunity because the order said you have to go ahead with discovery despite the president's assertion of immunity, which covers discovery. So I don't agree that the uh, discovery order in this case constituted an effective denial, and I'll be happy to elaborate on that, but I'd also like well, to address- that's the whole issue in the, your appeal. You just agreed earlier that you argued there's no order, uh, order uh, to be appealed from, and uh, Jenkins recognizes that you don't have to have an explicit order denying it. You can effectively deny it. And my question to you, isn't that December 3 order ordering discovery program, six-month discovery program, without addressing the immunity, isn't that an effective denial of immunity? That was my question. And the reason that I wanted to start with Jenkins is that I don't agree that Jenkins stands for the proposition that you can have no order. In Jenkins, the court denied a motion to dismiss in which summary judgment, in which uh, qualified immunity had been raised. The district court ruled on that motion, denied the motion, and said, I will address the immunity claim at summary judgment. There was the, the court. Well, that's, not, that's the same thing happened here. The district court said three times, I'm going to address it later. I'm going to address it later. It was raised, it was raised in April. And in April, the court said, uh, we're not going to hear it. We're not even going to allow you to be present at the hearing on June 11. And then on June 11, the court says, I'll address the immunity later. And then on July 25th, it says, uh, uh, I'll do a separate opinion. And then on August 15, uh, the president said, would you please rule on the immunity at your early convenience? Court didn't do anything. And then on December 3rd, the president said again, will you rule on my immunity? And on that date, instead of recognizing the immunity and promise to reach it, the district judge issued an order for discovery, which effectively denies immunity because discovery is protected by immunity. Well, the discovery order was only open, discovery was only open against the president in his official capacity. And now, I want to- doesn't I, make a difference, does it? He has to attend the depositions regardless. Well, I'd like to address, I don't think he, he has to attend the depositions. He had preserved his objection. You, is that what you counseled to, uh, uh, in a lawsuit? Your client doesn't have to attend depositions? Come on. I, honestly, I think that if we had an immunity claim that we believed needed to be addressed, there are a number of things that I would counsel my client to do. <clears throat> Sit the back first, in the living room and watch football games preserve, while the litigation goes on. Preserve the objections and decide whether or not to attend the depositions. But you could also seek mandamus. There's no question that the court, that the, uh, that the, Defendant could have done that here. And if he had, the result would be that the this court, if it believed that the mandamus standard was But the met, gravamen of your position is that you just want to keep the litigation grinding on and on and on. Let the district court have it for, you know, 18 months or a couple of years. The court of appeals doesn't have jurisdiction under the collateral order doctrine. Immunity isn't, you know, you... The dis discovery um, takes place and there's been no ruling on the immunity until lengthy discovery takes place. And the gist of it all is that the president is tied up in court with litigation that just the, the purpose of it 
And the purpose of the suit is to just have the litigation go on and on and on and, and avoid any kind of, of resolution. And that, you know, that seems to me, and I wonder what the implications of having the litigation just grind on without resolution, what are the implications of that for separation of powers and for the potential, not just of this suit, but of many, many other suits to simply tie down the presidency and the executive branch of government to a greater extent than it has been um, uh, impeded before, because that, that, you know, that's the end of it. Just keep litigating, isn't it? Judge Gregory, I see my time has expired. Yeah, yeah I think you can answer the question, yes or no, the first part. And, <laughs> and then you can go ahead and say, is that your intent? Of it? I couldn't guess what your answer would be. Well, there are a number of, there are a number of questions baked into that question. Uh, certainly our intent is not to tie up the president in litigation. In fact, we've tried to dismiss the individual capacity defendant from this lawsuit. And we're also not taking the position that if uh, discovery had gone forward and we had noticed the deposition of the president that he would have no effective relief, either from an effective denial or um, through mandamus, but here, where the district court uh, evidenced an intent to rule, was working through the issues in this case, and there's uh, no order from which to appeal, we believe that this court should, at a minimum, that we, we believe that this court does not have jurisdiction, and if we believe that even if this court does have jurisdiction, that the appropriate thing to do is to send it back to but the district the court. But if the president is denied a right to appeal under the collateral order doctrine, aren't the long-range implications of that that the president's going to be tied up in interminable litigation without a court of appeals ever being able to review it? And what it, what it does is, once again, um, have the executive branch of government by virtue of your interpretation of the collateral order doctrine, have, have the executive branch of government tied up for an indefinite period of time without the ability to seek recourse in the Court of Appeals for something that, for, for litigation that may be truly going off the rails. And that's, you know, that's really what's at issue here. We can debate the pros and cons of this this wrinkle and that wrinkle of the collateral order doctrine. But the long-range effect of this is, is whether we are setting this um, whole business down debilitating role of litigation that offends the most basic separation of power principles that the, you can just keep the executive dangling. So... We don't believe that that is this case, and we certainly don't believe that the court needs to go that far in this case in interpreting, in, in deciding whether there was an effective denial. And even if there was an effective denial, whether this court will then reach out and decide an immunity question in a case that we have said we don't intend to litigate. And so... Well, if you said, if you said we don't intend to litigate it, we don't want to litigate it, we'll dismiss it with prejudice, I'll bet you you're colleague on the other side of the aisle will be readily uh, prepared to dismiss the appeal. But uh, you have said and even repeated today that you're reserving the right to file it again. And uh, is that what this is all about? Is there some gamesmanship going on here? Well, I don't believe there's gamesmanship. All that's irrelevant if there's no jurisdiction. That's all you have to say is it ought to be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Well, and any of these other issues are for the district court. Judge King's point of jurisdiction and the comments about gamesmanship and military tactics, that's what we face all the time with cases that come up here. You may have another motive. I don't know what your motive is. I'm not going to impugn that to you. But that's what's going to go on with this case. We have a legal issue before this court. We're not the news channels. We're not the political folks out there arguing about this case. We're not Congress. We're a court of law. We need to decide the legal issue in this case and forget about the question of, well, what's going to happen? Is the world going to turn upside down if we don't? If we do this, is the president going to have to work too hard? Or is he going to have to give up? There's a clear legal issue before us. And if it does go there, 
There are remedies that can address those concerns. But this is not the time to do it. We don't do it in other cases while we're doing it here. I agree, Judge Wynn. And for the reasons that I've explained, we don't believe that this court has appellate jurisdiction and that the appeal should be dismissed. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. <clears throat> this court unquestionably does have appellate jurisdiction over the case. The case is not moot. Uh, the arguments are being pressed. There is relief the court can give. The president has asked for from the very beginning of this case. Uh, the plaintiffs are unwilling to give him uh, the, uh, anything close to the relief that he's seeking. Um, on the effective denial point, I want to make a couple of things very clear. The notice of appeal that we filed included a notice of appeal of the order opening discovery. So we do have an order that we filed a notice of appeal. It's not just simply a notice of appeal on the docket untied to any action by the district court. Uh, I also don't think, I mean, I mean, I think the court has to grapple with the question that if it's actually going to require something as explicit as what happened uh, in Jenkins, and again, that's not much more explicit than happened here, I'm going to rule later is not much different than uh, I'm going to issue my decision at a later point in time. They're so very you want close. this court to take over the discovery, too, uh, in the uh, official capacity case as well? I'm sorry. You want us to take over discovery as well to manage that? No, no. I think that that the subject that subjecting the president to well, discovery, subjecting that's well subjecting. You keep forcing that. We're talking about the law in terms of discovery. That's normally district courts manage discovery, don't they? Correct. But forcing oh. the president to be subject to pretrial procedures, including discovery is an effective denial of his right to immunity. And it all couldn't be any any more clear. But you said in an official capacity, you also extended it to discovery. That's the way you were trying to say it's more than just the individual. We included also the question of stopping discovery, even in the official capacity. Didn't you just say that? I'm, I'm sorry, maybe, maybe I misspoke. Well, did, did you say that? I'm, I'm not sure. I said that, the, that, that the, the, the opening of discovery against any party in any way, shape, or form constitutes a denial of but you said that you also included the aspect of discovery in the official capacity. You're asking us for a remedy there as well to well, stop that? Did you say that? Did you say that? Yes or no? Just now when I, when I took the podium or at some point in the case? When when, on your rebuttal. On your rebuttal. Did, okay. you, did you say that? So I Maybe I misunderstood, but I thought that's no, what no, you I, said. I, we may have an honest misunderstanding here. I'm not, I'm not sure what I say, so let me rephrase my point on this. All right. Once discovery was opened against any party in any capacity, the president, as a party in this case, was being subjected to pretrial procedures that constitutes an effective denial of immunity, and we have a right to appeal from that order, even if, even if the, the, the district court's prior statements were somewhat opaque about how long it was going to take to rule on immunity. That no, we're, we're, looking at all, we're looking at these various doctrines and um, to listen to the discussion of mandamus and immunity and the collateral order doctrine, it's almost as if we, we think this case is really no different from your ordinary slip and fall case, that the, the, the character of the litigation is demonstrably different from saying, oh, we, we face this all the time. That's, that's a response to you. Oh, we face this all the time. No, we don't face it all the time. This is a, uh, I think everyone would admit it is a, a, um, a case with dimensions that come before us that simply do not come before us on the normal Tuesday morning. And you have to take into consideration those separation of powers arguments which are fundamental go to the place of the judiciary vis-a-vis -vis the presidency and you can't just look at it from the limbs of your through the limbs of, of an excessive exercise of force under the fourth amendment or a slip and fall case or some other case that would uh, grist for the mill of judicial business this case is different I certainly agree that this case presents a lot of unprecedented and highly important issues. It, in, it, it incorporates separation of powers concerns, and those those weigh in favor of a lot of the arguments that have been advanced so far. Um, but it does, I mean, this is not a case where the parties have agreed, and I just want to address a couple points that my colleague on the other side 
made during her argument, a number of the cases that she cited were cases where the appellant filed the Rule 41A1 dismissal. And in that case, obviously, there's no relief that can be granted at the Court of Appeals and FRAP 42 is consistent with allowing appellants to voluntarily dismiss their cases. In a couple of the other cases that they cite, the appellant did not object to the appellee's dismissal of the case under Rule 41A. So there was no reason for the court to pass upon the question. And in both instances, those were filed back in the district court? Those were filed in the district court, but it's done. So there's jurisdiction in the district court to handle if the appellant does it or if the parties agree to do it? No, I think because the appellant can always abandon their appeal under Rule 42, it's essentially, it makes no difference. That's a Rule 41 back in dismissal. It's not a 42. It's not a matter brought before this court. If the transfer of jurisdiction by notice of appeal occurs so that you can't go back there, then basically you're saying you can. No, my point is that. So there is some jurisdiction to go back and handle it if it's the appellant or if they agree? No, and I think this is actually made explicit, I think, in the Fifth Circuit case that what the courts are doing in that case is treating the motion filed at the district court. A lot of those cases involve pro se defendants. They're treating the motion filed at the district court as if it was a motion to dismiss the appeal under FRAP 42. That's what I'm saying. Well, they didn't do it in the Younger case here in which we sent it back where the parties stipulated to the 41 dismissal in the district court. Well, so in some of those cases. That was this court, and again, if they can go back and stipulate in district court, there has to be some jurisdiction back there. In some of those cases, the parties may have essentially agreed that the appeal was moot. So in that case, at that point, maybe the case should be remanded and the dismissal can take effect. If there's no agreement here that the case is moot, I think Judge Niemeyer's questioning, my friend on the other side, made that point clear. With respect to the argument regarding the threshold issues, I did want to make a point. She raised Sitikam and Doe. Those cases do make clear that the court can choose among certain threshold issues, especially issues that go to the power of the courts. And so, for example, arguments about whether the court has the power to recognize a cause of action in some cases may constitute a threshold issue. There are other threshold statutory issues that sometimes go to the power of the court to act. But what Steele Co. and what those cases still simply say is that outside of jurisdiction or other similar threshold issues, you have to reach those issues. Help me understand, Lieutenant Bideau, why wouldn't we think about the Totten rule as being very similar to absolute immunity? We can talk about qualified immunity, but absolute immunity in the Totten rule, to the extent that you understand where Totten comes from, it seems to have a similar idea to absolute immunity. And, of course, Lieutenant Bideau, the court said we can reach that as a threshold issue. Why wouldn't we think about absolute immunity in a very similar light? Yeah, to be fair, I think there was a fair amount of disagreement as to what the precise nature of the Totten rule was. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But the point being is that it seems to have a similar foundation. Why wouldn't that Totten rule, which the court said under Steele Co., we can reach that as a threshold matter, why wouldn't that fall in the same category of absolute immunity, which seems to have a similar foundation? I think the concern I think Judge Niemeyer got at it is that immunity is a defense on the merits, and a ruling on immunity is considered a merits ruling. We cite a couple of cases for that in our opposition brief. But so would the Totten rule would be the same way. Again, I think that was the subject of some dispute in Sinecam and in Lieutenant Bideau. It's a hard issue, and I'm not trying to suggest that there's an easy answer to it. But I think that, again, the standing case is very easy. The absolute immunity case, although we feel very strongly about it, we recognize there's somewhat of a dearth of precedent on presidential immunity. There's two cases. This case we think is a lot closer to Nixon than it is to Clinton v. Jones, which I'm happy to expound upon. But the court, to sum up my point, the court clearly has appellate jurisdiction. And I want to make one other point about this case being done. Even if this case were to go back, there's another lurking issue that's going to bring all these issues right back to the forefront, which is whether their Rule 41A1A1 dismissal was actually effective because it did not dismiss the action as a whole. It only dismissed some claims against the president in his individual capacity. That remains an issue that we would absolutely have the right to appeal. Well, the rule talks about action. And then later in the rule it talks about a claim in an action. And so your point, I think, is well taken, is whether the rule is applicable only when they're willing to dismiss the action. Correct. And in this case, I think that there are other rules in the rules of civil procedure that specifically address adding or dropping claims or adding or dropping parties. Rule 54. It doesn't make any sense to read Rule 41 to basically take the place of those rules. The one thing you know from a case like Mitchell v. Forsyth is that the 
extension of discovery and the extension of of litigative proceedings is absolutely at odds with the whole purposes of immunity. The whole purposes of immunity are to get a case resolved at a relatively early stage rather than a relatively later stage. Otherwise, the value of the immunity is entirely lost. And to the degree that the district court proceedings on the subject of remand go on and on and on, the value of the immunity drops down and down and down. And that's, you have to look at this from the purposes of immunity and the particular cogency of immunity when you're bringing an action against the President of the United States. The purposes of immunity don't just dissolve when the President of the United States is defendant. They are magnified. And that's, you know, that's what we're talking about here. If I may just respond briefly. Certainly. Uh, I, yes, I think that's right. Do you disagree with that? <laughs> no, no, but, 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 but without, disagreeing, without disagreeing the point about the importance of this case involving the president, which we absolutely agree with and which a number of our actual <laughs> arguments on the, on, the, on the various legal defenses uh, go to, um, I mean, this is not the only context in which the court considers absolute immunity claims. And there is a real problem if there's going to be a decision that you need an explicit order addressing the time at which immunity is going to be made. That is going to effectively deny all the benefits of absolute immunity, and it's going to run afoul of numerous Supreme Court precedents requiring courts to address immunity claims, especially absolute immunity claims, at the earliest stage of litigation. Unless there are further questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Counsel. We'll ask the clerk to adjourn the court for the end of the term, Sandy Dye, and we'll then come down and greet counsel. Honorable court stands adjourned. Sign a die. God save the United States in this honorable court.